What should be our lead-in? Yeah. So she said she was married to me for four years. I... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What a great line. Mm-hmm. That conversation started, started like, oh, no, what's going on? And then it ended. Though there's no way you could predict that, it ended exactly how I would expect the conversation with Dr. Zara to end. <laughs> All right. So... Welcome, everybody. We have a session that, you know, we were at the retreat a couple of weeks ago, and Connor and Freddie had a couple of ideas that I think were great, and we strongly encourage anyone and everyone uh, to use the ChiefCast uh, to bring content to your peers. Uh, so uh, we're here with uh, uh, the rest of the ChiefCast, uh, one of our chiefs, Oase, uh, and I'll let you guys kind of take it from here. That way we can maybe interview all of us and ask Dr. Zar some questions. So tell us a little bit about your idea and introduce yourselves. Yes. So I'm Connor. First time here on the podcast. Very excited. Um, I think the uh, the big thing that we kind of wanted to talk radio about. Voice. Did you see that? <laughs> straight into radio voice. <laughs> yeah. I did broadcast for a couple of years in high school. So, oh, there, um, you there you go. It's very natural. Um, <laughs> So I think the the big thing that we uh, all have patient voice, by the way, which is we're like, oh yeah, let me call this patient. Like, hi, how are yeah. you? Uh, great, great. Take care now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I think the the big thing that uh, Freddie and I talked about um, on the retreat was one of the the coolest things that we've realized, and one of the big reasons why we came to UIC was the case that we have with Dr. Zar, um, and he kind of puts on this amazing. Um, clinical reasoning um, in, you know, residency can be very difficult to kind of get to that point. So we wanted to, one, understand how we can better ourselves through our learning processes, and second, kind of pick all of your brains on how we can um, improve um, in our studying habits as well as in our clinical reasoning here in residency. Cool. And we'll give Jillian the mic as well. Jillian here, another PGY2, second time on the podcast. Yeah, um, <laughs> uh, yeah, really into trying to figure out how we can study better and learn more. And, you know, we do see high volume in this program for sure. Um, but uh, as kind of like an anal retentive person, I, I'm very interested <laughs> in like finding methods and frameworks and all that kind of stuff. So just wanted to pick everyone's brain here for that. All right. Well, Faz, do you want to take the lead? Uh, sure. If we introduce... Oh, hey. Yeah, I'm, go ahead. Who are you? One, one of the <laughs> chief residents <laughs> um, for research and education. For research and education. That's right. I'm not sure why I was invited to this chief. <laughs> because you're yeah. the chief resident for research and education. <laughs> yeah. For some reason. You're just, gr- you're just grabbing water outside and we grabbed you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and AML here from ID and other things. Yes, many other things. Associate program director as well. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Fred's are here. Um, so, uh, am I taking the lead on this from for, for a little? Yeah. Bit? So they they Perfect. kind of want to. Sure. What advice would you give for for studying? Um, sure. Um, I might have said this during your the morning report that I did on your interview day, and but I truly believe it, and it's it's kind of framed how I study. The patients will teach us everything, uh, and and it's amazing how they uh, they teach us exactly what we need to know if we pay attention. So. We we are a high volume program. You're going to have a ton of patients, which is why I think there's a lot of resources to learn from them. If you can make a point, and this is difficult, but if you can make a point of reading about each patient every day, uh, and those of you who've been on teaching rounds with me know that I try to find a teaching point with every patient every single day, and it's amazing how they will usually do that. 
Um, and sometimes it's a lot of reading. So uh, if it is a porphyria case and you ha don't remember porphyria, you're going to have to go on up to date. And we'll talk about resources in a second and read a lot of stuff and some biochemistry that you um, uh, bring back some PTSD. Um, <laughs> well, but if it's the seventh patient with community-acquired pneumonia, you can just go on and say, hey, you know, I wonder if the IDSA guidelines have changed. I'll just go on up to date and look at uh, severity scoring and, and treatment. And then you realize, hey, no, there is nothing new, and I, I did know what I was doing. But so if you can let the patients teach you something every day, and then we have a tendency to obviously make sure that we're learning from the patients under our care, but also if you can have every patient on the team, if you can try to read about their patients. I tell this to students, too, even though they have totally two, two patients, they should read about everybody else's patients. Um, and then... Um, if uh, something comes up, a clinical question, and I had a couple that came out of the M&M conference today, something that you wanted to look up, uh, what's the cross-reactivity between what came to my mind, histo and blasto antigens in the urine, because that came up at the, at the thing. I have, it's very old-fashioned, but I have a sheet of paper that I write stuff down on every day, and I say, Fred, you're going to have to look up these things before you go to sleep tonight. And I make sure I look them up, and I crumble it up, and I throw it away. Is that legit? Is that the live piece of paper? Yeah. <laughs> Today's? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, and yeah, there's more than one. But, That's uh, awesome. <laughs> but, yeah, here's today. Uh, so uh, that gives me a little bit of discipline so that I'm not uh, all over the place um, wondering what I, should, uh, what I should read. And then... Um, in addition to that, um, people have probably already stopped listening because it sounds overwhelming. Uh, in addition to that, uh, it is part of what I feel I owe the house staff and the faculty. Uh, I get table of contents alerts from 30 different journals every month so that I'm always surveying the literature. Uh, it's a little infectious disease bias, but it's also leading cardiology journals and GI and stuff hepatology, so that I just see what's out there. Uh, and if it's a super subspecialty thing that I realize it's not going to be very relevant, I don't look at the article. But uh, if um, uh, there's a new societal, if AHA has new guidelines for, uh, for the treatment of uh, heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, I, I, that's how I'm going to pick up on that and realize that there's something new on there. Uh, I will probably read maybe at one one article for every three alerts that I get. Um, I also subscribe to the New England Journal, and I always look at the case uh, uh, discussion if they have one. And Annals of Internal Medicine always has a review article on something. And if you just keep sampling all of those things, you can't help but learn medicine, I think, uh, and and definitely pass your boards. Yeah, and I think that goes into into the second question a little bit, which was, you know, we wanted to know how to approach the literature literature today mm -hmm. and how to stay current. So, just keeping your finger on the pulse mm -hmm. by figuring out what's in the literature. You don't have to be like you have to go like full blown journal club on each article, but it, you have to know what's happening because ultimately we are, uh, you know, our practice of medicine is you know the the, the accumulation of hundreds of years of history and we're actively living that history you know the changes that happen the new guidelines that come up and you won't know if something is out uh 
unless you have you, know, you do something similar to what Dr. Zara is doing. Uh, you know, a, a, a weird analogy is if you go to the supermarket enough, you're gonna know you're, you're gonna know what Brad Pitt is up to because there's always like something. It doesn't mean I'm reading the article, right? But I know, for example, that Brad Pitt had some issues with alcoholism. He, you know, he broke up, he got back together, all those things because you know the front the front page of In Touch magazine or whatever it's called, you know, it says so. You don't have to read the whole thing, but you know what's going on. You have to do something similar with the literature, which is develop a system where you can have avenues of reading what is happening and inevitably you will find something that is important to your practice aka the patient that you're seeing at the moment or something that you see frequently enough that you say you know what i gotta read this there's Mm -hmm. new community acquired pneumonia guidelines for example came out last week Mm -hmm. you know you don't have to read it right away but you're like oh no this i gotta put you know on my to do to read uh, folder any other sorry i left out one resource um conferences so uh, at a conference hopefully there's some learning but when you see somebody quoting uh, some new uh, uh, ASN guidelines for AKI or something, if there's a reference for that, just copy down the reference maybe and just add it to your, your literature that you have on your computer just so you know where to get at it when the next AKI uh, hits. So there, there's, uh, there's some active learning and there's some passive learning in the conferences that you uh, attend. And when you give lectures, hopefully you'll annotate your slides with references so that you can teach back to everybody. Yeah. Always. Can I? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, can, can I also jump in and say, ask for maybe advice on how this evolves throughout your training? Mm-hmm. You know, as an intern, I feel like trying to stay up on guidelines was not something that's on Correct. my radar right. at all. Yeah. You know, what would you recommend to interns versus PG2s versus PG3s? Great question. I, I can probably comment on that because mm-hmm. I You've was recently that yeah, sure. um, So when I started uh, intern year, it was like very difficult to keep track of the literature. It is. So what I was doing is I really I subscribed to New England Journal, mm-hmm. and I really like that journal. So they have in almost every uh, I heard it's every, popular. Yeah, in almost every uh, every issue they have a case of the week. Yep. So the That's case records, yep. and then they have a review article about something. Correct. So I. Always, no matter how busy I was, even if it was like the worst ICU uh, month that I had, at least once a week I would read that case of the week. Okay, so the case of the week changes every week. But then if I had more time, if I was on a lighter rotation, then I would read the review article on porphyria or the review article on heart failure or whatever, um, just to make sure that I had those two. And then sometimes on a very light rotation, like consults, then I would read the ones that I missed, the, you know, the review article from no. whatever from a month ago. That's how I stay afloat in intern year and even like in second year. As you get more uh, comfortable in your clinical reasoning, because this all built up my clinical reasoning, I think, and as you get more comfortable and taking care of patients takes less time, then you're going to start, um, or that's what happened to me, is I started like asking the more nuanced questions. Mm-hmm. How, what is so special about this patient's heart failure compared to this other patient's heart failure? And then I would try to look those up in UpToDate or other, like, more advanced journals. So that's how I kind of go through residency. And the other thing that happens, and it's just part of the process, which is wonderful, uh, as you move through the system, you're being asked to teach more. So you'll have, you know, as an intern, you had an M3, and and they're at kind of a a level that you can teach them a little. But as a senior, you have the M4s tugging on your code. And then as the teaching senior next year, and then as an attending, you're constantly being asked questions, and that 
generates a couple of responses a day where you say, yeah, I don't know, but I'm going to look that up because that is a great question. So the system will keep you up to date uh, as long as you stay in an academic environment, I think. And, and it just kind of evolves naturally that all of a sudden I have to read more because I'm the senior on this team and it's scary. And I, and so yeah. it's a healthy fear. You get a question, you act confidently, you say, we'll get back to that one. And then yeah. Yeah. Um, just a uh, kind of a functional uh, kind of parenthesis. Have a system for yourself. Okay. So I have a calendar reminder every Sunday that sometimes I do and sometimes I don't, but it says review the literature. And I have a bookmark on my Chrome with all of the journals that I read. So rather than get it on my email, because then I get like too many emails. I just open, you know, right click on that that uh, address thing, and it opens all of the journals, and I just breeze through them. Um, other there's software out there, Feedly, and all these RSS feeds uh, that can conglomerate it. Uh, sometimes that doesn't work well, or at least not for me. And then last but not least, Twitter. Everybody's on Twitter these days, and you can follow the journals on Twitters and on, on, the, on Twitter, and you know, take it from there too. So it, it does seem just kind of like uh, listening to everybody here that one of the big things is kind of having at least a limited exposure to a lot of things and then just having heard about something, finding the things that, you know, come up in clinical practice and then reading about it more in depth. So essentially right. building that kind of wide spectrum and then just focusing on things that are interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and, you know, we kind of focused there on the literature, but you also uh, were asking uh, just about how to prepare in general and kind of, uh, coming to, to Jill's question as well, you know, how do you prepare as a PGY-1, 2, and 3? Um, and, you know, having your pulse on the literature is an important thing because you will consume literature for the rest of your career uh, and you will progress with the literature. But all of us, uh, you know, as residents and as young, kind of younger career people, we, we also have a lot to catch up on. So uh, with that, what do you guys think for, for uh, reading and resources as a resident? Kind of how should you prepare to not necessarily catch up with the literature, but learn how to do things? What processes do you guys have? We can cut that, don't worry. Oh, wait, so you hungry? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I was, I mean, in my third year, I was going through the mixed up questions in preparation for boards, and there were still pretty sizable pieces of the medical knowledge that I wasn't comfortable with. So I would go and read great. those sections well, in the great... journal or in JAMA. Okay. Um, just like review articles. Review about, okay. Yeah, review articles about those topics. And then mm -hmm. if there is anything yep. specific in the review article that I wanted to learn more about, maybe not necessarily part of the mix app or mm -hmm. in order to answer my question, then I would go and search that. And, uh, well, that's a wonderfully literature. efficient way. And, and, and tell me if this doesn't resonate with you. Uh, if if you were to pull up a review of, of sarcoidosis in the New England Journal and you were to read it now, maybe 80% of what's there you already know. Mm -hmm. So it's not a very efficient process. I'm not saying don't re read those review articles. I do it all the time. But when you know that you have a kink in your armor, when you know that you missed a mix-up question, when you get your in-training exam back and it says you didn't know those indications for surgery and endocarditis, that is a kink that you can hammer out in two seconds. You can say, well, I got that objective wrong. I don't remember the question. But I'm going to go on up to date. I'm going to go to endocarditis. I'm going to look for indications for surgery, class one indications. And I'm just going to learn it because I got it wrong. And that's 100% efficient. You knew you didn't know something, and you just learned it. So I would definitely not to add so many things to the list of how to keep up, but that's a, a wonderful resource when you know you missed something to just attack it. 
And you were saying, Dr. Zar, how there is an overlap, but not a complete overlap, between preparing for wards and preparing for boards. Absolutely. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, uh, the uh, and just reflecting on back what, what you just said, I think in the PGY one year, uh, your um, major goal is to make sure that nobody dies. That you're, you're a doctor <laughs> for the first time, you've been working towards this your whole life, you just don't want to make a mistake, and hopefully everything will be okay, and then if you have extra time, you will try to learn. But uh, what you're saying, and I'm, I'm talking to the second years here, is what every intern in the past says, I really didn't have much time to assault the literature during the intern year, and that's understandable. Um, but then as, as time moves up, and again, getting back to my teaching point, uh, the point that you have to be teaching, uh, that's when you can put the systems processes in there and say, yeah, okay, you, you're, you're giving azithromycin ceftriaxone for this community-acquired pneumonia. Why are we doing that? Let's step back. And what is the port score? And what's the CURB-65? Why are we doing that? And you can add that <clears throat> next layer, a little bit of a teaching point, make sure that the patient is on the right antibiotics, and then move on to the next uh, thing. I hope I answered the question. Yeah, and I think it does because it, it, it connects uh, a, a little bit of both. So uh -huh. when you see your community-acquired pneumonia, which you will see plenty, um, read about why, why you are doing what you're doing. You know, question everything and double-check everything because, yep. because things change. Uh, and that's one way to prevent error, but also to continuously learn. Now, there is that overlap where if you read about that cap that you're treating, then you'll learn and you'll, you'll probably get those questions right. But if you only read about the things that you see in the hospital, then you're going to miss out on 80% of your, of your board questions because internal medicine is too broad. And another thing is not everything is testable. So how you had to figure out how to, you know, uh, uh, place a patient or uh, an ACS rule out, those questions are not, those cases, though important and, you know, routinely something that we see, it's not necessarily something that is testable. Uh, that happens a lot, even more so in the subspecialty fields, where you know there's no good answer for for certain things. But um, certainly, you have to, you know, if, in in ID, for example, if I only read about the things that I that I see, I'd, I'd be you know great at staph aureus and terrible at everything else. So you you have to read beyond what you see, just because you'll get tested on, you know, beyond what you see as well. Yeah, and it's a, just 60 more seconds on that. The um, it is the national board, the American board, sorry, of internal medicine. So they test you on medicine of, of all of America. So they'll have coccidioidomycosis questions exactly. out there, which we don't see. They'll have Lyme disease, which we don't see much of. Um, and, but they want you, and they will also have the returning traveler with a fever because it's, it's kind of global medicine now too. Uh, so you you will have to read about things that you don't see, and I think that's the best way to get at those. And another thing that uh, I think probably contributed to all of our learning, but is when you ask for a consult when you're actually on the wards. I remember as an intern, I'm, I wasn't the one personally calling most of the consults. I think the seniors did that, and I think that's still the case because the seniors at least have a better understanding of what's going on with the patient. But when you're asking for a consultant's opinion, you should have some idea of what should be a question. their answer. It should be a question. It shouldn't just yes. be AKI, you know, that's it. No, it should be like, you know, what is, what it, I, I should have something in my mind that uh, this is what I want my consultant to do, and this is what I should, like, push them to answer the question. And then when they come back after they round their attending, you should have at least one or two questions that you should ask them. 
because it's a teaching hospital and we're learning, so we're all learning from each other. Yeah. Another thing about having a system, it, you know, Dr. Zar was mentioning how he writes things down so he doesn't forget uh, what he wants to read about, and, and you know, his, that's his process of continuous learning. I think as trainees, we have a lot to, you know, a lot of stuff to, to, uh, uh, to learn in the first place, and it really helped me to develop some sort of schedule. Um, because if you don't, then you, you, you forget. And, uh, you know, your first year, you're learning different things that you are your second year and as, at a different level. Uh, I always tell my mentees, you know, uh, from residency that, you know, the first half of intern year, more or less, um, you're learning the processes of being efficient. And, and Dr. Zara was mentioning, not, you know, making sure that your patient doesn't get any harm, that you get those EKGs done and, and whatever it is that your tasks are. Believe it or not, they those tasks sound menial, but they're you're going to have it for the rest of your life. I'm sure you, I wouldn't be surprised if Dr. Josh started doing that paper thing when he was an intern, you, you know, and, and you take that for the rest of your life. <laughs> it was papyrus back then. But. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I do the organization skills that I learned with regards to sign out, writing notes and being efficient. I learned my intern year and I still use them now. Uh, the second half, more or less, of your intern year ask yourself what you would do for that case if you were the senior. And that is the essence of preparing for next year, where, you know, sure, you, you know the basics of what you want to do for that COPD exacerbation. Forget your seniors there and say, what would I do if I were here by myself? And once you have a digested plan, looking for your resources, reading whatever it is that you need to read, and then telling your senior, you'll get your corrections or whatnot, but you'll learn how that would roll when you're on your own. Uh, and then your second year, I think you have to have, uh, by your second year, a good plan of what to cover. Always think of having a resource to read for wards and a resource for boards. The board's resource is going to be much more concise, much highly testable things. But if you read, say, an article on a review article on heart failure or up to date or whatever, um, and then you read the board material, you say, all right, I learned a bunch of stuff. Had tons of questions because this is complicated and there's a lot of things that we don't know 100% yet, but this is what I'm going to get tested on and this is what's important for my test. So that's kind of helpful to, to, to treat them a little bit different because they are a little bit different. And uh, that's great advice. Um, I just wanted to bring up something that I also had uh, kind of developed for because I feel like also during residency, we get all these lectures, um, obviously. <laughs> we have morning reports and noon conferences, and sometimes a lot of that is passive learning. Yes. Um, but ways to kind of make it more active in um, Birdo, uh, second-year resident as well. Um, we were talking about something that we found pretty helpful was that, you know, for each lecture, we would kind of talk, write down kind of what was from morning report and noon conference, and then make a point of, like, going at the end of the week and That's then excellent. reading about it. Yeah. So you kind of can refer back to when we talked about it in morning report or noon conference mm -hmm. and reinforce those because I think the big thing also is kind of how you continue to utilize like space repetition and right. mm -hmm. review the things that you'd learned about the week prior. Yeah, that's excellent. And I'll tell you something that I used to do as a resident too. You see a lot of common things, right? So when I was, when I developed my reading plan, say, I also said, you know what, when I, when I admit a patient with a, with a, I don't know, an NSTEMI or heart failure, I want to write the perfect note. And as I read for myself for studying, I would type down the things that I would want to say or want to write. And that kind of tr translated into kind of practical to do from practical reading. Um, 
have pride in how you write your notes because it shows that you're that you've read and that you're you know uh, confident in what you're saying. Doesn't mean you're going to be right, but at the end of the day, it shows that you made a conf- you know an assessment that is based on on, on reading. It's the difference between saying trope leak versus uh, an NSTEMI type two. Uh, it, it shows that you know what you're talking about and you connect that diagnosis, that name and that last name, with the proper management. So it helped me to write. First of all, to read the three or four most important topics of each system, and then to have some template of, of what I want to do uh, uh, just written down, because then I would just copy and paste it and then like c- fill it out with the information that I wanted for that patient, um, and that helped me uh, with my call nights too. And the other, and you do this as a consultant, right? The, <clears throat> a lot of times when we have uh, an assessment, uh, it's just a list, and that kind of happened in the M&M conference today. Uh, um, AKI could be and just rattle off seven things without any prioritization. Whereas the excellent consultant comes into the case and and says um, refractory pneumonia most likely due to endemic fungi, listing why you think that, less likely this and this because of this and that, so that you you show some clinical reasoning in the note. Right. And if you force yourself to do that, then it forces yourself to have some prioritization. Anybody can just list a, a differential from a sheet of paper, uh, some table on up-to-date of the causes of interstitial lung disease. But if you can try to prioritize and say, I really don't think it's this, 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 yeah. and this. Here's the top three. Here's the six tests we're going to do to decide among the top three, and then you're you're done. And, and, and the residents are so busy with writing notes, and the, and the services are so busy, but... It, if you can add that a little bit of extra, it would help a lot. And that's what we want from our consultants is don't just say order a bunch of tests. Say, this is what I think yeah. it is right now. That is the most important <clears throat> thing that we do on a daily basis. Yep. Like when we are in rounds, we present <clears throat> a bunch of data. And at the end of the day, mm-hmm. you know, frankly, I've, I've seen the data as well. It's important to present it and all of these things. But at the end of the day, I always ask, what do you think is going on and what do you want to do? That's a casual way of saying what is your assessment based on that information what diagnosis are you going to peg to that? The diagnosis per se could be, you know, rule out endemic mycosis, or it could be, you know, any. It could be a, a symptom, a symptom too. Uh, but at the end of the day, this is what all of this information digested means to me. This is what I'm going to call it in the medical literature and jargon, and this is what I'm going to do about it. Your, your plan. Uh, cool. Yeah. And, and and speaking of that, what do you guys think? So, Dr. Jar, uh, uh, you were going to say something. Yeah, I just this is. Echoing the same thoughts, but Dr. Michalacek is still new liver. He's new-ish, not at this point. Liver attending. He's excellent. And he, um, he, like when he was giving me feedback, he said that he thought that the assessment was like the lost art of medicine, I think Uh, is what he said it. And he... He was like, I'm really going to challenge you to take the assessment, just that one-line assessment. And, I mean, when I was a med student, I think some of my residents told me, oh, you just... You, you just say, you know, the patient's name and their past medical history, and then you put yeah. what their chief complaint was, period, and that's your assessment. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no. yeah. You know, that's what I was told. Yeah. And he said, no, it needs to be basically exactly what you said, you know, yeah. your thought process of what, what the yeah. patient is presenting with in symptomatology as well as data and what you think is really going on with this patient. Yeah. And he writes amazing <laughs> attending <laughs> addendums yeah, that are like very thoughtful. <laughs> and so I've been trying to yeah. work on that based on his feedback. And it's Great. it's kind of fun. I don't know. It, it feels is fun. good when and, you write a good one. And when, uh, when I was a second year, 
I mean, I would say much of my co-residents didn't do this. Like, it wasn't mandatory. But I remember that my first month of of uh, sec- being a second year at the VA, they were like, oh, you know, and you should addend your notes. And 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 I loved doing that because it, it, it also made me hedge my bets, decide what the likelihood is, and call things as they were. You know, am I going to call this acute pancreatitis or chronic pancreatitis? Mm-hmm. Am I going to call this this or that? And that meant having to read things and having to make sure that I'm that it that it shows that I know what I'm talking about as best as I can. Yeah. And I think to piggyback off all of that, um, Oase kind of talked about previously about the um, we were talking about note writing at UIC mm-hmm. um, and places where we can improve. But I think that if there was an effort on behalf of the residents to really make a focused effort to take pride in our notes and really have those those templates that we uh, and you know the thing that I think is very important about having a template is that it forces you to go through a similar yeah. mindset and a yeah. similar thought process which I think is what makes the morning reports with Dr. Zar so great because we get to see that thought process for mm-hmm. a specific chief complaint mm-hmm. um, but I think that by maybe utilizing that pride a little bit more in our notes we could also increase our ability to make clinical decisions and yeah. uh, all the downstream effects of that. Mm-hmm. And as you're going through your note and writing it, you will come up with things that you missed. Mm-hmm. Oh, what are we going to do about mm-hmm. that ESR that's mm-hmm. very, very elevated? No one mentioned yeah. that in yeah. the entire notes. So. Yeah, you should try to explain every abnormality. Every there, abnormality. there are mm-hmm. patients and days where you can't. That, that elevated L class that's 20 over normal, and just that's what it is. But uh, the set rate of 130, you should have an explanation mm-hmm. for it. If you don't, you, you've got to rethink it. Yeah. Um, well, that would be great, Connor. I mean, uh, note writing is and assessments is is kind of a lost art. And, and Epic is going to motivate us, by the way, to document really clearly what our assessments are in a prioritized fashion once mm-hmm. that kicks in. Anyway. Yeah. I just opened my my folder from my PGY2 year, a folder <laughs> called Freedendums. Where, oh, my God. And this is just an example. Like, I, for syncope, for example, I wrote down San Francisco, San Francisco syncope rule slash serious adverse outcome predictor model. And that was a note to myself to say, don't forget to do this for that particular patient. Wow. So as you read for these things, it was helpful for me to, like, write down what I want to make sure I did for some of these cases. You know, you're going to admit a couple of syncopes for sure at some point and... Um, you know, things like that. Um, you know, what I also like about that is that I think what you guys are saying, you know, as you write your note, you you remember to check off all these little boxes. And I definitely developed that skill as an intern. But now that I'm a second year and I don't write the progress notes, mm-hmm. I feel like it's very easy for me to miss little details. Um, so maybe, you know, maybe doing an addendum would be a good way to uh, mitigate that. Yep. And I'll never forget, uh, I admitted a case once and... Dr. Godwin was my attending, and he, he, he referenced like whatever it is that I wrote. He said, I agree with what you said in your addendum of XYZ. And I was like, oh, great. Because I mean, it felt like, you know, my thought process was in writing, and, and he read it and he said, okay, you know, he agrees or disagrees with something, but it's, it's there and, and he understands where I came from. Uh, and that's really the purpose of, of all of that. Um, but, you know, we talked a little bit about assessments. How do you even get there? So, you know, we were talking about how your system is in morning report. Mm. Um, how do you translate that into clinical practice? And how, what would you say is your way of, you know, figuring out a case? Well, my approach, and I may, I don't know if I shared it with the current health staff, um, but 
but Fredo, you know about the. Uh, I have a list of all the possible chief complaints in all of medicine. I don't know if, if Connor, I mentioned this when you were a student. I think so. I think I remember it. <laughs> and, and, there, and there's only 120. There's only 120 reasons that people come to us and say, "Here's my chief concern." Yeah. And if you can have an approach to each of those 120 then you're in business. It, it, you know, when we think of medicine, we say, oh my God, it's 20,000 different things. That, well, there probably are 20,000 different diseases, but there's only 120 things. So over time, you get an approach in, uh, to how to attack it. And uh, we think, what I try to do in my clinical reasoning is to think backwards, meaning we have this basic science knowledge and, and anatomy and biochemistry, et cetera, but the patient doesn't come in and say, you know, I think my red blood count is low. They come in and they say, I'm short of breath progressively over the last three months. And so if you take shortness of breath, which is one of the most common of the 120 chief complaints, you just, in your mind, you say, there's got to be something wrong with the lungs, something wrong with the heart, or something wrong with the red cells, because those are the only three things that cause people to be short of breath. And then you just flip into your questions to explode those. So you, you, you know, you say, have you noticed getting paler? Is your urine dark? You know, you ask your, your anemia question, your blood in the stool. What's your diet like? You ask your lung questions. Are you coughing? Are you having a fever? Do you smoke? And then ask your heart questions. When you lie down, do you get short of breath? Do you wake up in the middle of the night? And I'm oversimplifying it, but that's kind of how the clinical reasoning works backwards towards the anatomy and the physiology that we, we all uh, tucked away as M1s, trusting that it would be useful later on in our careers <laughs> when we started seeing patients. And it, and it is useful. So maybe I should get that 120 list out to the house staff because I got it on my computer. And, and I've <laughs> never been able to find another thing to add there. You know, over several decades, nobody's found something that's not on there. Yeah, and my process in ID is trying to understand what is the anatomical compartment involved and mm -hmm. trying to peg a syndrome to it or, or more than one. Um, and that helps me go back to the literature and figure out what the standard of care for it is. Always looking into resources, whether it is guidelines or up to date, which is basically a you know expert opinion and uh, usually the standard of care because everybody reads up to date. Uh, but either way, just trying to identify what organ could be involved and why, uh, and then kind of going backwards from there of, of trying to see if it makes sense and what's likely and what's not. Sometimes things are more likely than others, and, and kind of based on the information you have, it kind of goes up and down. Um, but always review your literature in clinical practice. Always review your guidelines. Always ask why you're doing things. Never assume that what other people tell you is right. So. As a resident, that would be the, the usually the ED where you get, or your colleagues when you receive cases. As a consultant, it's usually the service consulting you. Why should, should you always question what everybody tells you? Because if you don't, then you are uh, also receiving either their mistakes or their bias. So in the interest of, of really patient safety and your own education, you should always review and make your independent judgment of whatever it is that you're doing. Uh, and that will make sure, you know, something as simple as community-acquired pneumonia in the sense that we see it all the time, you don't know if something has changed. You don't know if levofloxacin has a new black box warning. You don't know if, if you know, anything has changed, and that's why we should always review these things. Very good. Well said. Cool. Um, hmm, hmm, hmm. Let's see what else we have. How did you develop clinical reasoning? How can we encourage teaching as residents at UIC? 
I'll say that opportunities for teaching are everywhere. Yeah. You guys are doing it right now. And um, you have students, you, the same needs that you might have, others might. So sometimes you're like, you know what, I probably should be better at EKGs. Well, guess what? Maybe students are better, or need that too, or, or your coworkers or something. So there's always an avenue to teach. And you do learn by teaching, and you learn to teach by teaching. Um, so it's not just understanding the concept, it's being able to deliver it in a clear way. And the only way of doing that is is by doing it, because it's all about style as well. So you find your own style. And I, I think, I agree with you, the opportunities are boundless, and, and again, it's my, my style, and I know it's yours too, probably everybody in this room. There's always a teachable moment, and sometimes it's 20 seconds. You, just, you have a microcytic anemia, and the, the iron level is, is really low, and but you can just say, okay, design efficiently. What are the other microcytic anemias? You're, tra you're talking to the student. Mm -hmm. and, you, and, and if they can't list them, you tell them and you talk about sideroblastic anemias and uh, thalassemia. And that, that was 15 seconds. And you probably taught them something. So we have this concept that, that's uh, not correct, and, and Connor, you brought it up, that you have to lecture to someone and, and it's very passive learning, and that doesn't work. But when you have a patient right in front of you and there's a student next to you, you could probably find six things to teach the student as you're going over their presentation. And, to, and just say, well, what, what uh, uh, physical exam finding would be the most specific for a DVT in the calf? I, I'm glad you think this is one, I think you're right. And just those little bit teaching moments, uh, not a big lecture, but just a little tiny little bit of a pearl here and a pearl there. There's probably 50 opportunities a day to do that. Yeah, absolutely. Anything out of ways? Um, I don't know. I learned the most when I was teaching. Like when I was yeah, teaching. yeah absolutely. definitely. Or when I'm like the senior and on the team. And then some, like as a second year, when you're a senior on the medicine team, you kind of have to force yourself to learn mm -hmm. because you you're ultimately responsible for the patient. So you're like if something doesn't make sense, you have to you kind of force it. yourself to learn it. And then you can teach it the next day. And if you and if you notice something, it's it's weird how there's themes on teams. <laughs> like it'll be the shortest of breath admission day yeah. in your seventh year. <laughs> yeah. When you find a common theme and, and, and you can take time to focus in on it uh, the next day and just say, well, this patient has interstitial lung disease. Let's talk about all the different kinds of those really quickly. Because uh, you're right, the the more you teach, the more you learn. And you know this when you're presenting. Uh, like in a morning report or whatever, uh, the the one person in the room, I'm thinking of the university morning reports, the one person in the room that I know learned the most during morning report <laughs> is the person that presented yeah. the stuff at the end. I know that that resident or that chief resident knows this backwards and forwards. That's because they had to teach it to a whole bunch of smart people who could ask questions and say, well, wait a minute, aren't there other criteria for scleroderma now? And you'd have to know or not. So. One other thing about about kind of just teaching stuff I uh, and, and learning and keeping up, you know, there's just so much information out there that you have to read, right, for boards, for wards. And antibiotics is an example. Um, you know, it's it's a hodgepodge of things. I always tell the students that it's like it's like going to a stadium and having to learn everybody's name, last name, favorite color, who they dated, who they broke up with. Like it's it's, it's it can be kind of complicated. Um, 
But I think if you if you view medicine and your understanding of it also in historical context, it makes a little bit more sense. So it makes sense that we have nafcillin because we use penicillin and then we started to have penicillin, you know, resistant staph aureus with penicillinase. Nafcillin is stable against penicillinase. So that's why we have it. You know, and, and similarly with any condition, you know, that's why when we interviewed in the chief cast, uh, Dr. Lapata, we asked him how he used to treat asthma. Uh, and, you know, it was they had limited things. But Plead him. Plead him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and and, for, uh, and uh, you know, and, and it, 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 for, for us, you know, uh, the treatment of ACS is a is a, you know, a complex uh, uh, mnemonic of like seven things. Mm-hmm. But for somebody who's been practicing long enough, they remember when those things came about. And they're like, yeah, you know what? I remember the GC mm-hmm. trials in the 80s that showed that aspirin made a big difference. So it's 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 more intuitive because they, it's living history for them. Yeah. And I think uh, it, it, it can take a little bit of effort, but it, it adds like the logic to it to understand what people used to do before. Yeah. I agree completely. That's kind of a later stage once you once you're comfortable with the initial stuff. But the history of medicine, and I know you're an expert at this kind of stuff. The history of medicine is absolutely fascinating. Why do we do what we do? Why are things named after this person or that person? Um, I'm kind of sad that eponyms are disappearing from tests and stuff like that because these people really taught us a lot about how to think backwards, as I was talking about. But if you can drill back, and this happens in the morning reports at the end where you go back to the initial um, uh, people who describe the disease, and they're just brilliant reasoning. Um, and we, every generation is thankful for that. But. For instance, yesterday I learned uh, Dr. Eric Simon, um, we were going to give a bolus to a patient in RRT. Uh-huh. And he's like, can we get a liter of uh, Ringer's lactated? Because uh-huh. apparently it was named after Dr. Ringer. Yes. No idea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's la- I think it's lactated, but it should be Ringer's lactate because yeah. But by learning about the history of it, yeah, kind of, go. it makes more sense. Make, it makes more sense. Cool. Well, I think to close off, we'll say that the chief cast is an opportunity for you guys to teach as well. So by all means, if you guys want to join in any way, shape, or form, that's what we're here for, and we're always happy to have you. Thank you all. Thank you. Thank you.